of all the things Jesus did, one of the greatest is arguably the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, why is that so necessary? Um, you know, people, people uh, talk about this. You know, why is it so necessary that we, um, that we actually have to believe the resurrection? Um, well, it's the hinge upon which all of Christianity swings. And I wanna kind of show you how important that is. Um, and that's why I start here in Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, um, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the people, of course, in chapter two. And uh, what would be the fruit of the Spirit? Um, after the Holy Spirit came upon the church, um, you know, uh, what does that look like? Now, a lot of you already have mindsets of what the Holy Spirit looks like in the church. Well, that's flopping around in the aisles, swinging from the chandeliers, glitter falling from the ceiling, or, you know, fire tunnels or whatever, uh, you know, some of these crazy, uh, you know, sort of things that churches do that are not really biblical. But, but actually, as it turns out, um, the Holy Spirit is powerful. And what are the things, what are the marks of the Holy Spirit-filled church? Um, some people would say tongues. Well, of all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which one on priority list is, the, is tongues? Anybody? It's the least of all the gifts. That's what Paul said. Read it, 1 Corinthians 14. It's the least. It's funny how that one gets all the press, which means we're probably doing it wrong um, for the most part. But what is it that the Holy Spirit-filled church looks like? Well, we see, I think, that beautifully depicted here in Acts chapter four, verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. So I believe things can shake up if the Holy Spirit's there. Shaken and a bacon, here we go. Um, they, the place was shaken where the, they assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So what happened at this Holy Ghost happening where the whole congregation was shaken, speaking in tongues, flopping around, glitter falling from the ceiling? Nope. Two main things that I wanna show you, um, uh, well, there's three or four actually that are really cool, but the big ones, it says, um, they spake in tongues? No, verse 31, they spake the word of God with boldness. One of the great manifestations of a Holy Spirit-filled church is boldness in speaking the word of God. That's a big one. That's what happened here. But notice the second thing was uh, they, they were kind to each other, verse 32. That's also, you know, they were sharing because they were the persecuted church. So they, they stood with one another and they shared all their possessions and stood, stood together. That's another, you know, fruit of the Holy Spirit, love and, uh, you know, caring for one another is definitely that. But then notice it says here, and with great power, uh, that's the Holy Spirit, verse 33, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. Um, what does the Holy Ghost Church look like? I think it looks like boldness in preaching the word and also um, to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he rose up from the grave. Um, this is where the Spirit-filled church stands out, uh, it, it, the truly Spirit-filled church. Um, Paul puts more emphasis on things that were discernible words than speaking in tongues. And of those discernible words, 
He, he's talking about the word of God, the Bible itself, which they boldly declared, but also the word specifically about Jesus raising up from the grave. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think this is what the Holy Spirit, you know, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to do that today. I've mentioned this in previous studies and discussions about, could it be that persecution is coming to the church uh, more and more? Is it gonna happen? Is it gonna heat up? I think it's very possible. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, if you follow what's going on, you know, the terrorist watch lists. Um, did you know most of you guys are probably on that is in the sense of if you are anti-abortion, you're probably on a terrorist watch list uh, if they have some record of you doing that. Uh, that's, this, is what the, uh, this is what the authorities say. It's not just me making stuff up. You can look this up. In fact, way back in 2009, this is a long time ago, in 2009, they were saying, if you're pro-abortion, you're gonna be on uh, watch list. And also in 2009, they said, if you're into Bible prophecy, you're gonna be on watch list. That was back in 2009, they were, they were talking about that. Um, now, add additions to the list, if you're a parent who cares about your kids and you go to a, a school board meeting, you're gonna be on a watch list because you're, of course, a terrorist. Uh, you know, it's like, it's ridiculous. Um, but I, I think these are all precursors and little signs of the times of maybe where being a Christian is not gonna be so popular and maybe even um, persecution is even just around the corner. That's possible. Do I wish for that? Not really. But if it comes, um, I would pray that what happened to the early church in their persecution I would pray that that would happen to us, that we'd be filled with the Spirit, bold in pro proclaiming the Word of God, and also uh, defending and talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, first, pardon me, Second Timothy chapter three, verse one says, know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Um, we should be kind of uh, expecting that. But the emphasis on a Spirit-filled church was, um, was the Word of God and the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you as a Christian never tire of talking about the resurrection. It is the main thing. Um, that's why this, uh, the early church uh, was, was filled with the spirit and bold in that area. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. We touched on this um, last, last weekend during the weekend service, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get to Mark 16 in a second. You're like, yeah, right. First <laughs> uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, what do we see in the first uh, three verses uh, um, or four verses there? Anybody remember? Somebody should say it. The gospel in a nutshell. Uh, that's the first four verses. We looked at that. You know, verse three and four, I delivered you that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again uh, was buried and rose again the third day, according to scripture. That's the gospel right there. He defines the gospel. But after defining the gospel, um, then notice what happens uh, as you jump ahead to verse 12. He's talking about the resurrection. Well, let's go to verse 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, uh, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then are preaching vain and your faith also vain. The word vain just means waste of time. Verse 15, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if it be that the dead not rise. 
For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And if this life only, in this life only, we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Um, this, this is Paul, you know, you might think he's being wordy with this whole, if Christ be raised, but if he not be raised, if he, but you have to understand that he's actually, if you know the arguments of the people of that day, he's actually sort of in, not really mocking terms, but maybe with a little bit of facetious attitude. He's saying, you guys that say this, or you guys that say that, if this be true, then your other part of what you believe is not true. Um, he's actually messing with these intellects that are saying, ah, who needs the resurrection? That's just for crazy people who don't believe in you know, stuff. Um, but um, what's so interesting about this is, you know, um, if Paul says, if we in this life have even faith in Christ, only in this life, then we're of all men most miserable. This life is not why we become Jesus followers. It's because of eternal life through Jesus. Um, if, if you're a Christian, you're gonna have suffering in this life, persecution. Those who live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. That's what the Bible says. So, you know, Paul said, man, if this is all there is here and now, then why would even be, we be Christians? We might as well pack it up and it's a waste of time. But because of the resurrection, we have life and it's the whole thing. All of Christianity swings on the hinge of the resurrection. It's all about the importance of the resurrection. Now, God at Brett, I understand that. Well, that's why understanding and believing Mark chapter 16 is of such great consequence. Um, you know, there's even churches today that are doing the same thing they were saying in Paul's day. Ah, why do we need the resurrection? That's, that's just fanciful, you know, uh, fantasy about, you know, Jesus dying and raising up from the, and some people don't, don't feel like they need that. But again, Paul is right. What a waste of time. If Christ be not risen from the grave, if Jesus didn't raise up from the grave, he would go down with all the other religious gurus in the world as just making religious claims, but not having backed them up with any legitimacy. No other religious leader has any backing of their claims. Muhammad, Confucius, Oprah, they're all people who uh, have their claims, but they don't substantiate them in any way, shape or form. You just kind of hope, well, I hope my religious guru, you know, Confucius, Muhammad, uh, Buddha, I hope they all kind of knew what they were talking about. But Jesus said, this will be the sign. You want a sign? I'll show you one sign. If, if you destroy this body, three days later, I'll raise it up from the grave. That's what is distinct about our savior and our religion, really. We have a religion that's living, not dead. Every other religion, their leaders are dead and buried and gone. Uh, bones in sarcophagus or tombs. Not so uh, with our savior, Jesus. So that's why we go now to Mark chapter 16 and we wanna really be familiar with it and appreciate it because it's the whole deal. Um, Mark chapter 16, Paul might just say, scriptures about the resurrection are some of the most important things for us to understand and know and to be able to defend and talk about. Um, so that's why we um, are glad to be here in Mark chapter 16. Well, it says in verse one, of Mark 16, and when the Sabbath was passed, 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had brought, uh, pardon me, bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, in the first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Now, already in these first two verses, we have, you know, some controversy. Um, have you ever noticed the gospel narratives just on a first blush read? You can almost seem to see contradictions or apparent, like, like were they, who was first at the tomb? Uh, who saw Jesus first? How many angels were there? Were there one angel or were there two angels? And, you know, the secularist, the atheist, the Bible critic will love to try to say, see, the Bible's full of the wrong narratives of the gospel. But um, I just wanna put your mind at ease uh, and I would recommend that if you do a diligent study, it all makes sense. It all comes together. We'll, we'll scratch the surface on some of that tonight. But, um, you know, the, 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 what's the chronological order of all the events you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, that's called the harmony of the gospels. Uh, if you don't have a good harmony of the gospels, that's a helpful study aid. A lot of your Bibles have a harmony of the gospels in the back of your, you know, near the concordance there, they, they'll put a harmony of the gospel, which is kind of cool, um, which kind of puts the whole story of Christ um, through the gospels from, you know, Matthew 1.1, Mark 1.1, you know, Luke, John, and it just follows the story and kind of weaves the various, various narratives together. And what that does is it shows that it's not contradiction, it's just different perspectives of the same story. Um, and, and we should uh, be uh, careful to not just listen to the cardigan wearing pipe puffing professors in your university saying the Bible's full of contradictions. Because uh, that's not an honest answer about what actually is happening here. But um, a lot of great in-depth work has been done and put into the, har <coughs> excuse me, the harmony <coughs> of the gospels. Um, and this is really important. Uh, by the way, the colleges and universities, even Christian universities, um, the deconstructionists now, as they call them, uh, which I would say, watch out for them. Uh, they're deconstructing your child's faith. That's their goal. Send your kid off to a Christian college and let them deconstruct the faith that you tried to build in them uh, because you're an oppressive parent who tried to teach them about Jesus. Um, and I, I'm very uh, leery of all these, you know, it might be okay in some ways if, if the deconstructionists were all saying, yeah, but let's make sure and reconstruct biblically. Let's go with the Bible. Because I'll admit, you can't trust your parents' theology. Uh, that's true. Um, but hopefully your parents' theology matches the biblical theology. Um, you can't just throw grandma's words out the window just because your professor says you need to deconstruct your faith. And there's all kinds of podcasts about deconstruction. It's a big popular thing right now. Um, but I'm, I'm sad to say many of the people that I see get into this don't reconstruct. They just deconstruct. Uh, and and it's, it's sad to see them blow away uh, true faith. And many of them have become atheists or, you know, progressive Christianity, which is not real Christianity at all. So it's really sad to see that. But, um, but one of the things these uh, colleges will do is try to tear down the faith as, as it relates to you know, Jesus and what we know and stuff like that. So we reconcile perfectly the four gospels together in the harmony of the gospels. Um, you know, and, and we've already got controversial stuff. Uh, it says that when the Sabbath was passed, so uh, when was that? Then Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, uh, shows up here. Early in the morning, the first day of the week. So the Sabbath 
is a Saturday, we know that. So the, the, the first day of the week, uh, Sabbath has passed, now it's the first day of the week, so that would be Sunday. And by the way, that's why we you know, Christians meet uh, on Sundays, um, uh, because that's when the church, from this day forward, you see them meeting on the first day of the week, um, and they do their services on Sundays. Um, now, your Seventh-day Adventists will, you know, argue tooth and nail, depending on what level of Seventh-day Adventist you're talking to. Some people, you know, I, I've Seventh-day Adventist people that have yelled at us saying, you've taken the mark of the beast. Well, how do we do that? Because you worship on Sunday. And I would just say to them respectfully, that's stupid. Uh, the mark of the beast has nothing to do with us meeting on a Sunday morning. Uh, please do not be uh, crazy. Um, but, but there are some Seventh-day Adventists. They don't make as big a deal out of the whole day thing as much, but um, uh, we cover both uh, here at Athe Creek. We worship on Saturday and Sunday. Um, two services on Saturday, three services on Sunday, four services Sundays most of the time. That's uh, great. Um, but, you know, remember what Colossians, you know, chapter two says, let no man judge you concerning the new moon's feast, Sabbath, or the festivals, um, which are a shadow, a shadow of Jesus. In other words, the Sabbath day and the principles of the Sabbath and, and keeping it holy, it's a good principle. It's something we should remember and keep the Sabbath. But at the same time, what day you use or what, what's the important day, Paul even says, don't let people get all contentious about that issue. And Jesus said, don't you guys understand? Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. So people that get all up in a tizzy about what the Sabbath day is, um, they're misguided. Read your Bibles. It's really important. Um, but uh, what's going on here? Well, the reason this is kind of interesting is because, um, you know, well, what day did Jesus die on the cross? Um, and, uh, and most people, if you're raised in traditional settings, well, it'd be Good Friday. We have Good Friday services. Um, but don't be so quick on the Good Friday thing. Um, if you do the math and you hear what Jesus talked about, do you remember in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said, for as Jonah was in the, the three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if he rose from the grave on Sunday morning, which he did, that is, that's irrefutable in the Bible. What day did he die? Some people say Thursday, some people say Wednesday. There's even a Wednesday theory out there. Did you know that? Um, but everybody just kind of uh, uh, sort of accepts the Friday one. Now, I wouldn't die on any battlefield on Friday, Thursday, or Wednesday, honestly. Um, you know, the Jews had a way of calculating that does make sense on the Good Friday. I mean, you can make an argument for the Good Friday, but it's a little tricky, and I'll tell you why. Because they, they kind of talk about if you are including any part of any day, that includes the whole day. So that's why some people would say Good Friday. So basically died on Friday, but because it was later in the day, um, that's all day Friday. So Friday, Friday night, Saturday, and then Sunday, but he was still in the tomb on Sunday morning early. So that counts as the third day. Um, but you say, but it's not day and night. Oh, well, whatever, we'll sweep that under the rug. But um, yeah, uh, but that's what they say because it's, it's a part of Sunday and it includes a whole day of Sunday. That's, and that is true. The Jews do think of things in those terms, which we tend to not think that way. The only problem I have with that theory, uh, I, I would take that, uh, except for the part where Jesus was very specific, even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so too, he says, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Remember Jesus, before he ascended, what did he first do? Descended into what? 
the lower parts of the earth, the Bible says. Remember, he led captivity captive. That is Abraham's bosom. We've done whole teachings on that. If you, you're, you're making this stuff up. It's amazing how people don't read their Bible so they don't know about you know, Luke 16, Abraham's bosom. There's the paradise side. There's the Hades side. And before Jesus died and rose from the grave, people didn't go directly to heaven. They went to Abraham's bosom, which is also called paradise, which is why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in heaven. No, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus and the thief went down to paradise. What did they do? Well, Jesus preached to the demonic entities on the bad side. Uh, boy, it's a long story. I know it sounds crazy. Um, you know, uh, but uh, read Luke chapter 16. And you could go through our study in Luke 16. We went kind of over all the details of what Jesus did. But before he ascended, he descended. Um, and then he led captivity, those that were in paradise, Abraham's bosom, the good side, led them up to heaven. Uh, where Jesus would be, uh, where we get to be. So when you die, you don't go to paradise. Uh, you go to heaven because Jesus died, first descended, then ascended into heaven. Um, so, you know, if you're going with Jewish tradition and the, the, you know, the, by the way, for the Jew, the day starts at 6 p.m. or at sundown. That's when the day starts. So boy, you got all kinds of tricky calculations on on that, but you'll find people argue on the, which day was the, um, the day of Jesus's death, Friday, Thursday, or Wednesday. Um, I, I, the one thing that I love about that is it's, I'm not sure it's as important as to understand that he died for your sins. Was it Thursday or Friday? I, I'm not sure 100%. Uh, I, I, if I had to land, I would probably say Thursday, um, biblically speaking. Um, but uh, I wouldn't fight that battle. I just love that Jesus died on the cross, and we know for sure that he rose again on Sunday, which was the first day of the week, um, which is kind of cool. Now you say, but Brett, I happen to know that it says when the Sabbath was passed. So we know which Sabbath this was. You do probably, unless you forgot to calculate in the seven other high Sabbaths. Do you guys know what a high Sabbath is? Um, a high Sabbath is like, Portlanders are like, when you smoke weed? Uh, <laughs> no, no. The high Sabbath, <laughs> sorry, is um, there's 52 normal Sabbaths in the year, 52 normal Sabbaths, but there's seven Sabbaths in the Jewish calendar that are high feast or high Sabbaths. Um, like for example, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you can um, look up Leviticus 23 verses six through seven. It talks about the high Sabbaths. Also Numbers 28, 17 through 18 talks about the high Sabbaths. And so Sometimes there were times where there was a Sabbath day on a Saturday, but the high Sabbaths would end up on other days. Um, uh, for example, um, if you remember uh, when the institution of the Passover, the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, uh, they'd select the lamb on the 14th and on the 15th uh, of Nisan, they would kill it. So those would be a high Sabbath as the Feast of Unleavened Bread would happen after that. That could be on Thursday or Friday. So when you read about the Sabbath here, and by the way, there's an interesting thing that happens in Mark chapter 16, verse one. The word Sabbath is singular, uh, like, you know, Shabbat, uh, singular. But when you go to Matthew's mention of this same thing, and Matthew, you can jot it down in your notes, Matthew 28, one, uh, it says, and in the end of the Sabbath, or you could read Sabbaths, um, the, 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 by the way, the word there in Matthew 28, one is Sabbaton, which is the plural form, uh, ha sabbaton, uh, the plural form of Sabbaths. That's kind of interesting. 
when it says uh, in the end of the Sabbaths in Matthew, it, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene to, and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. So, so uh, you can get confused if you're using only a Saturday Sabbath as your measuring tool of when the, the death of Jesus is. The reason I, I'm pointing that out is not just to confuse us all, but to understand people can come and say, well, see, um, they got the Sabbath day wrong. Uh, and you have to understand there's a lot of pieces that are part of this puzzle and way smarter people than you and me have figured it out and said, here's how it lies. Uh, here's where the Sabbaths were. There's whole books that have been written on the order of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, scholars agree. It all makes sense if you just do the heavy lifting and the homework. So um, th this shouldn't, the reason I say all this, don't let anything like that shake your faith. It's amazing how people who know just enough to be dangerous can tell your 18-year-old freshman in college, well, see, the Bible's wrong about all this, the Sabbaths and all this stuff. It's just all wrong. Uh, the Bible's full of contradictions. And suddenly their faith is derailed. Don't let that happen. Um, uh, always remember, there's smarter people than some of the professors at George Fox. I'm just saying that. Um, <laughs> there's some really smart professors at George Fox in the math department um, and science and some of those, but I'm a little worried about the theology department there. But anyways, um, other arguments uh, that the crucifixion was on uh, another day than Good Friday, the Sabbath. Also, there's another one that's kind of interesting. Did Jesus break the, the, the biblical versions of the Sabbath laws? The answer is no. The, you say, yeah, but remember they picked corn on the Sabbath. Well, that was, remember, that was the traditions of man that they added to the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. Um, but here's an interesting thing. In John chapter 12, verse one, we're told that Jesus, do you remember this? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus had been dead and whom he raised from the dead. You say, so what? Jesus went to Bethany. But if you know where he was in John 12, one, he went from Jericho to Bethany and if that was six days before the Sabbath, what that does is it puts Jesus doing a long journey on the Sabbath day, if you do the math correctly on that. Um, and you say, okay, Brett, well, what does that mean? Well, I believe this, this is um, part of our Sabbath controversy. Did Jesus do a big journey from Jericho to Bethany on the Sabbath day? And I believe he didn't. So the, the, there's specific three days, three nights that you have to kind of be concerned about when we're talking about this. Um, and again, Jesus said very clearly, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I, I take that as literally as I can. Whenever you're in doubt, can I just say, this has been helpful for me. Whenever in doubt, just take the Bible very literally. Even if people are screaming, don't take the Bible literally. Uh, I, I have just found a literal interpretation of the Bible uh, just when it says, as, he, as Jonah was in the whale, belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so too must the Son of Man be. I'm just gonna take that at face value. And I know that sounds almost stupid to say, well, of course, uh, take it. But there's a lot of people who love to use the, oh, don't take the Bible literally. Um, if you're a person who is given the job to teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible, uh, and you, you wanna do it without turning red and being embarrassed about what you taught last week, and how it doesn't fit with what you taught next week, then don't take the Bible literally. But if you don't wanna turn red with embarrassment and you wanna just be able to teach and it all makes sense as you're going through and say, well, it all fits perfectly together. If you take it extremely literally, the Bible, 
Only unless it says it's figurative. Like when Jesus says, uh, I'm telling a parable. We know that's not a literal story, it's a parable. Uh, so unless it's implicitly implied or spoken that it's to be taken figuratively, um, I've found that it's very rewarding and very helpful just to take the Bible very literally. I say this because there's a huge movement of, of people that I think have been derailed in their faith and their theology even. The more figurative you take the Bible, the more trouble you find yourself in. Um, does that make sense, y'all? I, I hope you guys see that. And as you go through the Bible with us here, I think you'll see that in time, how important it is just to kind of take the Bible, uh, literally. Um, so by the way, let me just kind of go over, just, I know I'm just brushing through this, but the chronological order of events of the resurrection of Jesus. If you put the, the gospel narrative together, kind of the first thing on the list that um, is also right here in Mark, but not in Luke um, and Matthew, is the first thing that happens on the resurrection morning is, is uh, of great uh, consequence is Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Uh, and then the second, um, the second is then he appears to the other women. And you say, well, Brett, didn't they all kind of appear together here in Mark's gospel? This is exactly where you can be sort of tripped up. Mark just gives us sort of, you know, Mary Magdalene and some of the other ladies came. That's all true. But if you read the other gospel narrative, he first sees Mary Magdalene and then the other women come. We see that in Matthew 28, nine through 10. Is that a contradiction? No, it's just a perspective. Mark kind of clumps them all together. Does that sound very Mark-esque? Mark is short and sweet, tough to beat. He's Peter. It's like, you know, uh, the, the husband and the wife conversation. Honey, how was your day? It was great. And then husband, uh, especially if you're newly married, honey, how was your day? Well, let me tell you. And you better be in for the long haul because she's gonna bring in the detail uh, of her day. Uh, and you just told her every part of your day, it was good. <laughs> it's just a perspective. Is it wrong that the man said it was good? Probably, but, um, <laughs> but you know, he's just giving his version of the story, which is a short abbreviated version. Uh, if you wanna hear about how Debbie and I met, I can tell you that whole story in about 20 seconds. If you want Debbie to tell you the story, you know, get some tea uh, and crumpets and, uh, and she'll tell you the long version. Now I'm probably in trouble. Uh, I'm gonna need marriage counseling after tonight's Bible study. But I'm just saying, we're, men and women are different the way we, Mark's gospel is sort of the, it was good. It's very short and sweet and kind of throws everything together. And Mark, that's just, and, and it makes sense when you know who's behind Mark writing it. Who's, who's behind Mark? Peter the apostle. He sounds like, it was good. That's, that's Peter. But if you go into Matthew, who was a tax collector and a detail guy and into the ins and outs and the logistics and stuff, he goes into quite a bit more detail. Um, the gospel of John is more detailed spiritually and more mystical and mysterious because that's kind of his nature, but they're all fitting together. So that's why uh, like this chronological order of events is kind of fun when you actually consider the different authors and the different perspective. Number three, the third main thing, if you put all the gospels together, Jesus then appears to Peter. Again, this doesn't always make sense in all the gospels, but Luke 24, 34, and 1 Corinthians 15, five kind of explains how um, Jesus, after appearing to the women, then uh, pops in to see Peter. And then number four, Jesus appears to the two men going to the road of, to Emmaus. And he gives that sermon about all the things of the Old Testament that pertain to Jesus. Boy, I wish I could download that teaching on, you know, God.com or whatever. Uh, wouldn't that be great to have the teaching that Jesus gave the two dudes on the road to Emmaus? 
of all the things in the Old Testament concerning himself. Um, I think we're, we're blessed because that's what makes the Old Testament come alive is when you see Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, but he, he preaches on the road to Emmaus. That's kind of a cool thing there. And then Jesus uh, ultimately then appears to the 10 of the disciples there in the upper room, Mark 16, John chapter 20. Um, that's that's a, a very uh, you know basic order of who Jesus saw first uh, and the people that he uh, connected with uh, after he rose up from the grave. Well, let's go to verse three. It says there in Mark 16, verse three, And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? Um, I love it, you you got a problem here, but in the Bible, whenever they ask who, the the answer is often he. It's not who, but he. Uh, The Lord is gonna be able to work this out for them. Uh, They're not gonna have to figure this out, obviously. Um, But uh, who's gonna be able to roll the stone away? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away for it was very great. Um, I love this. If, uh, when, when we go to Israel, uh, there's two locations, I think, possibly where the death uh, location and the burial. Uh, the Church of Holy Sepulchre, that's the Catholic version, and the traditional site uh, by Constantine's mother, Helena. She said, this is where it was, uh, Church of Holy Sepulchre. So people go there by the millions and kiss the rocks and freak out and put out all these gaudy things. But the British found a tomb uh, there called the Garden Tomb. And I'll show you some of our video of this one. And whether this is the place or not, I, I don't, again, it's like, is it Friday or Thursday? I, I'd say Jesus rose from the tomb in Jerusalem. Um, you can go see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre if you want. But this is actually a tomb just in the perfect location outside of Jerusalem of that day um, that was hewn out of a rock. In fact, there's nine requirements that, have to be met. It's gotta be by a garden. It's gotta be hewn out of a stone. It's gotta have a, uh, you know, the, the rolled stone kind of thing. See that little trough there? That's where the stone would be rolled um, uh, over that opening. And um, nine requirements for this to be the biblical place. And this one fits all nine requirements. And I think it's possible. There's actually a, uh, you can't see it here very well in that, but there's an anchor carved in the um, stone above this tomb. What was the early church symbol? A cross? No, it was an anchor. Uh, the, the anchor was the symbol of the early church. And so, um, and then you go inside this tomb uh, and there's no bones. There's, in fact, there's no body evidence of anybody ever being buried in this tomb, although it, it's hewn out like every other tomb in the, in the mortuary. Um, but uh, this, this, this place where they believe they, this could be the location. I wouldn't die on that battlefield either, but I love it because on the inside of this tomb, it says, um, why do you look for him here? He is not here, he is risen. Uh, and it's so cool because this, this garden tomb, the British found this like in the 1800s. Um, and, um, and then just around the way uh, is where Golgotha is, uh, and, um, the very likely place where they would have crucified Jesus. But the reason I show you that all this is um, you can see the size of the stone that would have been put there uh, over the opening and the trough that it would have rolled in. You say, well, where's the rolled away stone? Um, That's the interesting part of this tomb. Nobody knows. When they dug this area up, they didn't find a big round stone. Um, Now that could be for any number of reasons. Maybe somebody took the stone and used it for a building uh, in, you know, 500 AD. Like people did that kind of stuff all the time. So it could be something as simple as that. Or being a little bit, you know, biblical, I kind of like to uh, wonder who rolled away the stone and how did they do it? Um, when you read the biblical narrative, it's kind of interesting because the stone 
um, there's implication in the original Greek language that it wasn't just rolled away, but it was picking up and picked up and carried away, um, which is kind of an interesting idea, especially if you think, now this is a stone that I took a picture of um, uh, on Mount Nebo. This is where Moses looked over Israel. Um, But it's interesting, they have one of these big stones there that they found somewhere and they put it right there as a sort of a symbol on Mount Nebo to remind us of the cross of Jesus, which is kind of interesting. But this is what that stone would have looked like and it would have rolled right in that trough over the, the, the opening. So, um, you, know what, you know what I love about this is um, the, that's, you can see why the women would say, who's gonna help us roll away the stone? Um, it, it's, it's a you know, two ton stone um, and it would be sealed with Roman seal. Um, if you were to break that seal without Roman permission, you would be guilty and punishable by death. Um, that's important. That's why the ladies were kind of thinking, man, what are we gonna do? But you know, one of the things I love about the Lord is he kind of works everything out. Um, that's the way the Lord works. And uh, the Lord worked it out. They showed up to the tomb and there it is, the, the stones rolled away and they can go in. Now, um, uh, by the way, uh, I like to think of the rolled away stone as an obstacle that the Lord just took care of for the ladies. And if you're facing an obstacle today, don't forget the Lord's the one who can roll away the stone. Uh, he's got the power to, to fix things. And boy, as a, not only as an individual, but as a church, uh, we've watched that year after year, time after time, where the Lord just rolls away things that seemed impossible. Um, but you know, the Lord just takes care of that stuff. Uh, one of the things we're you know, seemingly facing that seems impossible is um, you know, we, we're, we're busting out at the seams, especially every September, we kind of hit the ceiling of our are uh, how many people we can fit in the parking lot and in the building. And, and every September we kind of smash up against that again. And what do we do? Six services? Uh, if we can get CPR paddles everywhere for our youth ministry and uh, you know, maybe some defibrillators and stuff for the parking lot guys. And, uh, Cause it, it's a lot of work doing those. But, um, but what are we gonna do? The answer, well, we, we, we wanna build the rest of our building. This is only half of what we proposed and had permission to, to, uh, to build, conditional use permits that we received um, for a 2000 seat sanctuary and for a 900 space parking lot. We had it all worked out. We paid for all the traffic lights and everything. And then the county just on a whim said, mm, you guys can't do that. You have to get a new conditional use permit. The last conditional use permit that we got cost us around $4 million. That was, and that was when Athey Creek was tiny. We were broke back then. So we are like, uh, that's why we didn't build from 2008 until 2015. We were licking our wounds, just paying off the conditional use permit stuff. Uh, then we finally got to build in 2015. Um, then we paved our parking lot under all those permits. And then, and then we're going, okay, now we're ready to build. We got our construction company and our, you know, we're, we're all ready to roll. And then the county said, eh, you guys don't have a conditional use permit anymore. Then they, a week later they said, oh, you do have a permit. And then a week later they said, you don't. So what do we do now? Cause they're saying, you don't, we're gonna have to go through all new traffic studies and which if you know this area, traffic study is not what we wanna do um, in this area you know, on a Sunday morning. Um, so what do we do? Well, it seems like there's a big stone in our way. Um, right now we're filing a federal lawsuit against the Clackamas County. Um, and it, it has to do with not land use issues, but religious liberties. Did you know that um, in Oregon, there's no place to build churches that are permitted 
If you wanna build a Safeway or a strip club or a marijuana dispensary, there's permitted locations where you don't need conditional use permits that are very expensive. You can just go build it in those zones. You still have to do building permits and all that, but uh, the whole conditional use thing, $4 million, um, you don't have to do that part. Um, we felt it was kind of unfair back in those days because we even went into the county and said, show us a place on the map where we can build a church um, without a conditional use permit. And they, they don't have that. Um, so, so when we filed our lawsuit, it wasn't a land use issue. We're saying it's a religious liberty issue. Churches shouldn't have to do more than everyone else uh, to meet and have a building built. Um, there's a law that was passed in 2000 called uh, the RELUPA law, Religious Land Use Persons Act. And so we're right now uh, in kind of the middle of that. We had a preliminary injunction hearing, just giving you some family stuff tonight, I guess. Um, uh, and the judge scolded the, the, the county attorney and said, you don't, you don't know what you're doing, you're gonna lose this. Uh, they told the county that. Uh, that was nice. I was hoping the judge would just sign it off right there and say, okay, because she had the power to do that. But uh, they, she didn't fully understand the RELUPA laws, I think. And so uh, we, it's gonna go to trial at some point. Um, maybe, you know, they lollygag. There's nothing that happens fast with the county. Uh, you write a letter of intent. You have 120 days to file a letter. And then Athey Greek has 120 days to file a response. And then 120, it's just like over and over. So somewhere in the beginning of the year, we're hoping we'll have a trial. And um, hopefully the judge will allow us to build our church building. That's kind of... Um, brother, are you guys worried about that? Not even in the slightest. I think the Lord's got it. Uh, I, don't, I don't care what happens, win, lose, or whatever. Uh, you know what? The Lord's good and he's faithful and he's the one who rolls away the stone. And we're, we're just trusting that. Yeah. Um, um, the reason I share that, just not just to you know, tell you of our story, but I hope with your story, you can realize that's the way we as Christians should, should roll. <laughs> just saying, you know what? We, we, we don't roll the stone away ourselves, you know? Sorry, yeah, see what I did there? Um, yeah, but, uh, but, but we, we let the Lord uh, go before us and we pray and we trust and we do the work that we need to do, but, but ultimately it comes down to just saying, Lord takes care of it. I love that, even the things that seem impossible. I'm reminded of Philippians 4, 12 through 13 that says this, I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So this is, in a way, I, that's what I'm reminded of when these ladies come, who's gonna roll away the stone? And it's like, bada bing, look, the Lord just takes care of it. Uh, just totally takes care of it. That's the way the Lord moves. Now, um, having the stone moved, um, brings up some interesting uh, things that I wanna bring up about sort of facts around um, the, the tomb itself. Um, I mentioned the broken Roman seal. So when the ladies see this, excuse me, the stone rolled away in verse four, that means the Roman seal's been broken. Remember, because we know from other, in, what is it, Matthew chapter 27, verse 66. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Um, and that was when the religious leaders came to, you know, Pilate said, hey, those guys said he's gonna raise from the dead. Let's make sure nobody does any funny business. So he says, okay, go seal the stone with a Roman seal and set a watch, which is a group of Roman soldiers. Um, and like food or medicine, if the seal's been broken, some, it's been tampered with. Um, the ladies come there and the stone is gone. The seal's been broken. And, and that's, that's already evidence 
of the, the facts that are around the true story of the resurrection. Um, there's so many things that seem so unlikely in this story when people say, ah, oh, did Jesus really raise up from the dead? Um, I think the answer is yes. And one of those facts that are important is the Roman broken seal. The second fact that I would uh, show you is the empty tomb itself. The disciples of Christ um, went right back to the city of Jerusalem. Um, and if, um, you know, if the disciples stole the body, the falsity would have been evident. Um, uh, in fact, uh, uh, one of the scholars, Paul Althaeus, states that the resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, or the notion of a resurrection, for a single day, not even for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. That means the, the disciples, the Jewish religious leaders, and the Romans all admit uh, that there was an empty tomb. And they were all troubled by this. That's kind of an interesting thing. Dr. Paul Mayer calls this positive evidence from a hostile source, which is the strongest kind of historical evidence. In essence, this means that if a source admits in a fact decidedly not in its favor, then that fact is genuine. Um, the Romans admitted there was an empty tomb. Um, that's, that's an amazing admission. The, even the Jewish religious leaders admitted there was an empty tomb. Um, so the, the fact that the empty tomb was uh, acknowledged by three, even the hostile sources, speaks to its factual accuracy. The third thing is the large stone itself being removed, the unu un, uh, unusual um, uh, position. Uh, um, the gospel, all the gospel writers mention it. Uh, John 20, verse two, uh, is probably the best mention where it talks about it. It looked like the stone had been lifted up out of its trough and set elsewhere, which, uh, what did they get, a forklift? I mean, okay, it's Sunday morning. They backed up, they get the forklift to lift the stone out of there. Like, how would you do that? Maybe you could get, you know, 30, 20, 30 Roman soldiers to carry it away. But again, that'd be very unlikely. Um, these, these women are the ones who show up and the stone's been removed. Um, uh, could, could, you know, if you're being really skeptical, well, the ladies moved the stone. Could they have done it with um, the, the Roman guards not noticing? Like, what are those ladies doing? Oh, they're just moving a two-ton stone, whatever. Let's get back to our little game here or whatever. Like, like I, I think they would have thought something's up over here. Uh, even if it was the disciples themselves uh, trying to carry away the stone, the, the Roman soldiers, um, which brings us to point number four of the facts around the cross, empty tomb, moved stone, um, large you know, stone removed, um, but um, number four, the AWOL uh, uh, nature of the Roman guard. Um, the, the Roman guard seems AWOL here. They're gone. What's the deal? Um, well, maybe they were just shirking their responsibilities. Is that possible? If you know your history of Rome and the way the Romans worked, there would be no shirking of responsibilities. Uh, I've done old studies on the way the Romans worked and stuff, but one way a guard would be put to death for like if he fell asleep on his watch. They would strip him of all of his clothes, pour kerosene around his feet and the clothes that he took off and burn him with fire uh, to, to be an example to the other soldiers. Uh, the, uh, failing in your duty is not an option. Dr. George Curie, a student of Roman military discipline, wrote that fear of punishment produced flawless attention to duty, um, especially in the night watches when, when they were given a night watch. 
Um, so the, the fact that the Romans are AWOL, now we know the biblical narrative says they, they go running and say, saying, hey, something's up. And, and it was all part of a cover-up from that point on for the Romans because they didn't want to admit we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Uh, number five, Jesus's appearances would be confirmed that he, that he was seen. The facts around the tomb, he was seen by people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse six, which we were close to uh, earlier tonight, it says that more than 500 people saw them, saw Jesus in his resurrected form. Uh, and they were willing to die for that belief. Um, and that's, that's, I guess, point number six. The disciples died for what they knew to be true. Uh, they knew that Jesus rose from the grave. So there's so many facts that we could talk about around the tomb. And, and I, I'm doing a disservice just even by touching on it tonight. We've done you know, tons of studies on the, the um, reality of the resurrection, the, you know, the defense of a resurrected Jesus, very much important. Uh, Dr. Professor uh, Thomas Arnold, he was 14 years headmaster of rugby, author of the famous History of Rome, and appointed uh, to the chair of modern history at Oxford. Um, one of the great you know, scholars, uh, you know, um, but he was also acquainted with the value of evidence in determining historical facts. Um, this great scholar said, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of one no fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than that great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose from the grave. Um, that, that's a guy who's not just a theologian or pastor. He's saying there's no greater uh, thing uh, uh, proven in history. Brooke Foss Westcott, an English scholar said, raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there's no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. That's pretty cool, coming from scholars. So, um, so there you have it. The, you know, the, the resurrection is defendable, starting even with these verses, verses three and four, the rolling away of the stone, the guards are gone, uh, empty tomb, it's all right here. Well, we go to verse five. Uh, there um, it says, um, and entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrightened. Um, you know, most scholars believe this is an angel. Matthew 28 says it's an angel of the Lord. John 20, 12 says that there were two angels here. Contradiction in the Bible, two angels versus one angel. Um, What's the answer to that? Well, it's pretty simple. Is there one angel or two angel? I think Mark is just talking about the one that talked. Mark's talking about the angel that spoke to them. And this is what the angel said. Um, uh, I, I believe there, there were two angels there. Mark doesn't really call out the two. Um, it's just, again, part of the perspective. Um, now, what angel is this? Some people wonder if this is the angel Gabriel. There's um, um, you know, Michael the archangel, kind of a warrior angel. Gabriel's more of a messenger type angel. And this is a big message delivering to humanity that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Um, so uh, some say this might be Gabriel. We don't know, but he shines brightly. And then in verse six, six it says, and he said unto them, be, be not affrightened. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. So the angel encourages them to take a look for themselves, you know. Um, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why going to Israel and going into the garden tomb, I like to get people from Athe Greek to go in there, take a look for yourself. Uh, he's risen, he's not here. They, you know, if all they would have had to do is produce bones or a body to, uh, for the Romans to crush Christianity, for the Jews to crush Jesus and his message, all they would have to do is say, oh, no, there's the body. Um, but there's no sign of uh, decay or any DNA left on the floor of that garden tomb uh, in, in Jerusalem, which is interesting. He is, he is not here for he is risen. Uh, so cool. Well, um, verse seven goes on. By the way, that's the picture that we take when the doors closed there at the garden tomb. Uh, when it's open, that's what you see on the inside. He is not here for he is risen. I love that picture. Well, um, verse seven goes on and says, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him uh, as he said unto you. Um, we talked about this in previous studies. Uh, we did a teaching a few weeks ago called failure. Um, and we were talking about Peter's failure and how failure is not fatal if you learn your lesson and trust the Lord. And Peter's gonna learn some big lessons, but the angel reminds him, go to Galilee, but make sure you get this to Peter too. Like, like just double check, because uh, this is important. And I think that's the heart of the Lord for you. You might've failed, you might've denied, you might've been a doubtful Christian, but the Lord say, let's make sure and get you in on the fact that it's all gonna be okay. That's the heart of the Lord for Peter. And I think that's the heart of the Lord for us. Um, now the angel reminds them here, um, you know, uh, verse, verse seven, tell Peter, and then that Jesus is going into Galilee and there you shall see him as he said unto you. Are the disciples waiting for him anxiously in Galilee right now? No, they're sitting around going, what happened? And Jesus told them over and over, remember, I'm gonna die on a cross, raised from the dead three days later, and then I'll meet you in Galilee. So the angel's like, hello, guys, remember what he said? He said he'd meet you in Galilee, so go to Galilee. Like, like I love that. Um, in fact, Matthew 26, um, verse 32, but Jesus said in Matthew to the, Jew, to the disciples, but I, after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Uh, he, he wrote this out perfectly clearly for them. Um, are they being disobedient or are they just full of unbelief and they just don't really believe that Jesus is gonna raise up from the dead? That's the sad part of the story here. Um, but I love the graciousness. Just do what Jesus told you to do. Go to Galilee, wait, wait for him there. Um, well, um, then uh, verse eight, it says, um, and they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man for they were afraid. And there it is, the end of Mark chapter 16. Let's, let's pray. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Some of you are like, no, that's not. Well, some of your Bibles, did you notice? It says that's the end. If you have a newer translation, it'll put a notation in there. Uh, how many of your Bibles have some kind of a notation saying this is technically the end, okay? Um, now, I've got a bunch of reasons why I think that's totally wacko. Uh, first reason, this would be a horrible way to end the story. They ran away afraid from the tomb. Ah! That's the end, God bless you. Um, that's, that's the story that they say is the end. 
Now, um, uh, boy, do I go into this in depth or not? Um, there's a reason some you know, translations make a note. Um, so, some of the translations take it out altogether from verse nine to the end is, is taken out altogether. But most of your newer translations put a notation there and say, um, well, this is where you know, some of the manuscripts um, marked the ending at verse eight. Um, some margins read uh, Mark 16 through uh, chapter 16, verses nine through 20 are doubtful. Does anybody have the word doubtful in your Bible there? Okay, some of you guys do. Just take your pen out and cross that word doubtful out. That is a, um, now I'm not knocking your translation. Um, I, I'm thankful for all the translations uh, that are legitimate translations. But they are all translations. That's something to remember. Unless you're reading from the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic of the original texts, um, you're probably gonna have translational issues. Um, the reason why I do love the King James Bible um, is because, man, it's withstood the test of time. And the translators that King James, as wacko as he was, um, they were amazing translators. Like they, they took a very honest look at uh, uh, trying to translate. Um, and when they took the New Testament and translated it, the King James guys, they used a text called the Textus Receptus, which is just a fancy um, you know, way of saying um, the text that was received. Um, and uh, you can look this up. Uh, you know. Now there's some people that are King James only people. And if you're one of those people, God bless you. I just don't agree with it. You're like, and here's the funny thing. King James only people come to AC Creek because, well, at least he uses the, the only anointed Bible, uh, King James. So I'm gonna be at AC Creek because he, uh, well, that's great. We're glad you're here. But um, you know, even the King James has its mistakes, uh, its translational issue, if you're gonna be honest. Um, unless you're reading from a Greek uh, you know, text, uh, you're gonna see problems. Um, um, but one of the things I love about all the mainline translations you can get every bit of theology and doctrine you need out of those translations to be saved and have good solid theology. Right up until you get to the ones that are not real translations. For example, the New World Translation. If you have a New World Translation, you need to take that home and burn it. Um, it's, it's not a translation. The Watchtower guys from Jehovah's Witness who are not linguistic scholars uh, changed it to fit the Jehovah's Witness uh, Boys in Brooklyn, Watchtower, and it just changed full on meaning of things in the Bible. So you gotta watch out for the Watchtower, you know, New World Translation. Also Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon, of course, the Book of Mormon uh, is not the Bible, but uh, the King James sort of slash Book of Mormon translation of the Bible, they, they also tweak stuff out. I don't believe in the brother of Satan, Jesus. I don't believe that Jesus was a person just like us. Um, uh, I don't believe that you could become a god um, I don't believe that, you know, God was once a man like us who was a really good Mormon and entered into the celestial heaven. Like it gets weirder and weirder the more you look into the doctrines and covenants of Mormonism. Um, and plus, you know, there's crazy stuff. Mormonism used to promote polygamy. Uh, Mormonism used to promote racism. Mormon, like, like it's time to bail and say, you know what, let's just get with the Bible. Why are you trying to look like Christians? Just become a Christian. Accept Jesus of the Bible and, and leave Mormonism for the weirdo thing that it is. Um, be honest, look at it hard, don't just... Now, here's the hardest part of this. Mormons are some of the nicest people I know. Um, that's the hardest part of this. Uh, I have good friends that are Mormons and, um, and my heart breaks because they're such good intentioned people and, and hardworking and there's so many things I can really approve about Mormonism. Their Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the translation so-called of the Bible is not 
something I can commend at all. Um, and it's derailed a lot of people from true faith. So um, what, what about this, um, you know, this idea of the, you know, the King James only? Well, King James is really a great translation, but so is ESV and New American Standard. There, there, there's some great translations. Um, and, and here's where the, some of the controversy of, of Mark chapter uh, uh, 16 comes from. Two scholarly guys, Westcott and Hort, uh, relied heavily on two Alexandrian codices um, in the, they were the fourth century documents. Uh, fourth century is pretty late in some of the documentation of the New Testament from the first century. Um, by the way, something to note about uh, Westcott and Hort, they were not uh, believers. They were Greek linguistic scholars um, and they were getting their information from Alexandrian Gnostics, if you know what Gnosticism is. And that's where their uh, texts were coming from. And, and it just so happens that the, the, the works that they did uh, in their linguistics uh, work from the fourth and sixth centuries um, didn't include the last half of Mark chapter 16. They, they axed that part. The reason we can know that it's reliable is there's so many things I could talk about. Um, Irenaeus in AD 150 quotes Mark chapter 16, verses nine through 20 in his commentary. That's only 150 years after Christ. Um, Irenaeus, also uh, Hippolytus, uh, uh, the second century, um, uh, Syriac, the Prashido, second century, the Curitonian, uh, uh, Syriac, third century, all older than the Greek manuscripts, the Alexandrian Gnostics. They're all containing verses from the last half of the chapter. In other words, even in the Latin versions, Jerome, 382 AD, had access to Greek versions that we have no longer available to us. And yet he includes these 12 verses at the end of Mark. The Vulgate um, was the only revision of the uh, Vetus uh, Atala, uh, second century, and it also contains these 12 verses. Um, others, we could go on and on about all the versions and manuscripts. One thing that I love about the Bible, by the way, is there's thousands of manuscripts. So like the fact that there's so much manuscript evidence is so incredible. The question is, the, do you go with the newer manuscripts as your sort of, rule or do you go with older? Do you go with newer? And some of the arguments is there's more of the newer, so we're gonna go with the quantity or do you go with the older and go with the quality? And that's the big argument. Uh, you know, a New International Version versus the King James is which sources did you actually use to translate your Bible? And that's where some of the things, have you ever noticed like the New International Version leaves all kinds of scriptures out? Like if you're reading Acts, uh, what is it? Chapter eight, verse 37, it's not even there. Uh, it goes 30, 30, 36 and then 38. And you're like, what happened to verse 37? They just took it out because it wasn't in the newer, more, more common manuscripts, but it was in the old manuscripts. Well, Brett, now I'm really nervous. I have a, a new international version Bible. Have I lost my salvation? Um, no. Uh, I like the older NIV from pre-1984 because they didn't mess with gender issues. Uh, until later, then NIV started messing around with gender stuff that wasn't in the original text. Um, so you can, you can you know, criticize and scrutinize, um, but unless you're reading from the Greek or Hebrew text, uh, do we really know what we're getting? I'm just saying King James, New American Standard, ESV, those are some solid translations that you can know everything you need to know uh, by that. Um, there's another, um, now this is one that would be hard to, defend, I think, uh, normally. But I just wanna, do you guys remember when I um, mentioned to y'all um, Dr. Ivan Panin in Matthew chapter one? 
Dr. Ivan Benin's an interesting dude that lived a long, long time ago. Um, and he was a mathematician. Um, you can look him up on Wikipedia or wherever. It's, uh, but he was a, um, a numerologist, uh, theomatics guy in the Bible. And he found what is called the heptatic structure, which is just a fancy way of saying the sevens in the Bible. The number seven is an important number in the Bible. Um, and I mentioned how you know, Matthew chapter one is a heptatic structure, um, uh, which is the genealogy of Jesus, which is such an amazing thing. Um, but uh, Matthew, uh, if, you, if you look at Matthew um, chapter one, guess what other chapter in the Bible is heptatic in nature? Matthew chapter, or pardon me, Mark chapter 16. Uh, Mark 16, this chapter, including, now you say, what does that mean? Well, okay, here's, I'm gonna attempt to explain this. Uh, um, in, in the original Greek text, Dr. Ivan Benin found in Matthew 1 and Mark chapter 16, like for example, here's, here's what, what he found in Mark 16. By the way, it took his whole life to do this. He didn't have uh, AI or supercomputers uh, to do this. Um, by the way, to write the Bible to do this would have taken AI and supercomputers. Um, for example, everything is in heptatic structures of sevens, multiples of sevens. The first eight verses, um, there's 126 words, seven times 18. 42 words beginning with a vowel, 46 times seven. 84, all, all these are uh, multiples of seven, words beginning with constant. Um, 427 letters uh, in the first eight verses. Uh, even the syllables are uh, all heptatic. The, um, the last nine verses that you know, we're talking about here, uh, 175 words, all multiples of seven. Um, uh, the first eight verses, it's funny how you divide it into the half of the first eight and then the last. Um, they all have heptatic nature involved. Um, Dr. Ivan Benin found 75 heptatic structures of everything being multiples of seven. Now, if you were to try to write a paragraph using that, saying I'm gonna use this many vowels, I'm gonna use this many consonants, I'm gonna use this many you know, genders, like, like these are the things Dr. Ivan Benin found. He found 75 heptatic structures in Mark chapter 16. Um, what are the odds of that just accidentally happening? Uh, uh, it's, if you know your scientific notation, 75 heptatic structures, the odds of that just accidentally happening because it's so structured, so, so much intelligent design behind it, for it to just accidentally happen, they believe it, the odds of that happening are one in 10 to the 50th power. What does that look like? Um, well, by the way, here's, here's my buddy, Dr. Ivan Panin. Uh, he lived from 1855 to 1942. And he said, uh, what, is, what is 10 to the 50th power, the odds of that happening? Well, it looks like this. Here's, it's just you know, 10 with 50 zeros behind it. Uh, now, if you're, if you're watching online, you have to kind of look at the screen above. Uh, that is the odds, one in that many times. Uh, it's, it's probably more, that's less likely than you um, going out to Taco Bell after church tonight. Um, uh, no, but you say, Brett, what does that have to do with anything? Only to say this, if, if you understand, and you can look this stuff up, Dr. Ivan Panin is an interesting study. He spent his whole life studying Matthew 1, Mark 16, and finding the heptatic structures. And, um, and he, he, he basically said, this is, this is the fingerprint of a designer. And the Bible is much more rich than just some little book of stories. Um, see, a lot of people go around, ah, the Bible's just stories written by man. 
Man could not have done the heptatic nature of Mark 16. And I find it interesting, the very chapter that some of the more progressive, newer scholarship says, well, half the chapter's not even inspired for the Bible. Yeah, but there's this interesting fingerprint of God on the whole thing. So while I would argue they maybe use different texts and codexes and all that stuff and textus receptus and all that, the fact is, A, I think it'd be a horrible place to end the story. They ran away totally afraid. B, the heptatic structure is on both sides of this, verses one through eight and uh, verses nine through 20. It's all part of that heptatic, miraculous nature of this chapter, uh, a design that could not have been done without a supercomputer or AI or something like that. It's pretty, pretty sweet. Does that make sense to you guys? So um, I would just, you know, if your Bible says uh, doubtful or anything negative about the last half of this chapter, I'd just cross that out in your little notes or uh, commentaries of your Bibles because that's, that's ridiculous. Um, and by the way, everything in this section is gonna be also sort of provable. Wow, I gotta hurry, here we go. Okay, Mark 16, um, uh, let's read the last half. Uh, verse nine, now when Jesus was risen uh, early the first day of the week, he appeared um, first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven devils. Okay, so Mary Magdalene, um, uh, she, she uh, is associated with the woman uh, who was a city, uh, in the city uh, center, Luke 7, 37, who washed Jesus' feet, but there's no scriptural basis. How many of you have heard that Mary was, uh, Magdalene was a prostitute? Um, well, that's, that's, we don't know that. That's, that's not for sure. We know she was uh, you know, possessed by seven devils who Jesus cast out of her but we don't know that she was a prostitute. That's all speculation. Uh, I think it was The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, they made her a prostitute, uh, even though that's not even really biblical. Um, the city of Magdala, where she's from, that's why she's Mary Magdalene, she, uh, that city did have a reputation for prostitution. Um, and so some people have made that leap, you know, but Mary Magdalene is nowhere identified as a prostitute or even a sinful woman, except for the fact that she was possessed by these devils before Jesus got to her. The fiction novel, which got all that traction years ago, uh, said that, you know, the Da Vinci Code uh, made claims that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were um, married and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's just all wacko uh, stuff that's not true. Hope you know that. Well, verse 10, and she went and told them that, um, that had been with him as they mourned and wept. Um, and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Oh man, again, the women win in the story of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Here's Mary saying, Jesus is alive. Like, yeah, whatever, you know, you're, you're crazy. Um, so in verse 12, after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. So. Uh, you know, the road to Emmaus, that's Luke 24, 33 through 35 is the more detailed description. We'll read that in a few weeks when we're finishing up Luke. Um, but verse 14, afterward, he appeared unto 11 as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not. Uh, them which had seen him after he's written. Now this is interesting. Mark tells us that he kind of gives them a hard time about this. You guys didn't believe. It's a little bit like what he did. Remember Thomas said, I'll believe when I can see it. And then Jesus appears and he says, oh, Thomas, uh, don't you know it's better to believe without seeing. Now the, all the disciples are getting that rap here from Jesus in verse 14. 
Um, they, they didn't believe the women. Um, uh, by the way, in biblical times, sad to say, a woman's testimony wasn't worth anything, not even in a court of law. Um, that's the way they rolled back then. So isn't it something that Jesus, God, uh, chooses to use women to be the first testimony of, like that's so unlikely. Uh, it almost to me contributes to the reality of the story because nobody would have done that. Hey, who should we have, if we're gonna make up a religion, who should we have reveal that Jesus rose from the grave? Let's get a group of women to do it. That would have been the last thing in their mind in that day, in that culture. It, to me, it's just like the Lord say, watch this. I'm gonna do what your culture thinks is awesome and I'm gonna blow it all away. And I'm gonna have the most unlikely source who gets to see me first and that is the women. I love the story for that. Well, verse 15, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We looked at that verse on Sunday, but he continues, verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Um, question, do you have to be baptized to be saved? But it says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Which one is it? Well, notice there's a couple things here, and this is where some people argue this, and understandably, I can see why they would, but you gotta read the other passages of scripture. Not every mention of how you're saved says you have to be baptized. It does include it sometimes, like here where it says, those who believe and are baptized are saved. But did you notice it's not duplicitous here when it says, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Um, it's, uh, you say, well, Brad, I don't know about that. Well, here's the thing. In, in the early church, you have to understand, becoming a Christian, the next thing you do is you get baptized. Like to them, it was just math. You know, are you, you're a believer now? Let's go get baptized. That was just part of being obedient to be a, a Christ follower. But it's, it's a work of the flesh that is not that which saves. It's just that what you're supposed to do when you get saved. If you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, it's, it's time to be obedient while the water's still warm here in Oregon. It is a good time, <laughs> good time to get baptized because I'll baptize you in December, but... Uh, but uh, you better to do it in, in September. I'm just gonna say it right now. But uh, baptism is, you know, repent and be baptized. The Bible says this over and over. So I'm not arguing against baptism, but um, not every mention, Romans 10 verse nine, and if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus and God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. Um, if you had to be baptized, that scripture would become wrong. Does that make sense? Because they didn't bring up the baptism part. Um, so you have to kind of compare all scripture with one another. Baptism is important. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And verse 17, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. One of my buddies, Chico Holiday, a guy, if you know who he was in the 50s, he was a sort of rockabilly, you know, showman, kind of, you know, one of these Las Vegas, he was a Las Vegas performer, he's famous. Um, but uh, I got to lead worship at one of his Bible studies for a couple of years. Um, but Chico Holiday, all full of all kinds of great stories. When he became a Christian and left Las Vegas, he went on tour with a guitar, playing at churches all over the country. My wife booked his concerts for him for a long time. Uh, she was her his sort of agent or whatever. Uh, but he went to a church in Texas. Uh, and he, he said, Brett, I went into this church and I got my guitar and I was leading my songs and, you know, big church like, like this, you know. And he was singing along and all of a sudden these guys started bringing boxes up in the front. 
And he's like, what's in the boxes? Is he singing his songs? And pretty soon they start breaking out these rattlesnakes. And they start passing rattlesnakes all around the car. And, he, and if you only knew Chico Holiday, he's hilarious. He said, Brett, I, I got my guitar and my case and I made a new door in that church. He said, I, I saw those rattles. And here's the funny part. They didn't even know that he left. Like the guy that was the concert dude, he left because he was freaked out by the rattlesnakes, but they just kept, they were all up about the rattlesnakes. What's this snake handling thing in churches? Can I just say stupidity? That is not what the Bible says you're supposed to do is pass snakes around the church, uh, stuff like that. Well, Brett, it says if you handle, uh, you, know, um, you know, snake or whatever, um, they shall take up serpents. And if they drink deadly things, these same churches that pass rattlesnakes, they'll drink poison. And they'll, they'll say, see, I'm okay. It's like, oh, I guess she didn't have enough faith, I guess, as they drag her off. And, you know, it's a weird, weird thing. That's not what this is saying, to have services around rattlesnakes. What this is saying is if you go out into all the world on the mission field and you are in dangerous situations, where you're drinking deadly stuff and snakes are there and stuff. I mean, Tad and Marna, I, I love the story of um, Marna was in, uh, taking the, she has, they have this little, when they live there and they're, they're headed back here in a couple months, I think. Um, uh, when they lived there, they had this little shower. It's like a, a bush shower out there in the jungle. Um, and she was out there and uh, one of those coral snakes, very deadly. Uh, she's just showering. All of a sudden she's got this coiled up coral snake on her and she, you know, Tad hears her screaming and Tad comes out and, and there's, and, did you kill that coral snake? Or did, you did, you murdered it. <laughs> Murder. Um, no, uh, these, these things, like uh, good news for Marta. This, is the, this applies to her in that situation. Marna, did you apply this scripture at that time? <laughs> Not at the moment, yeah. Um, but I, I think this is what it's talking about, is when you're out doing the work of ministry and mission work, when you're in dangerous situations, the Lord protects you. Um, so don't be taking up serpents in church services. That's a bad idea. Um, notice these signs, verse 17, will follow them that believe. Not you know, believers following after signs and wonders. Churches get that wrong all the time. So verse 19, then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God and they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord, working with them and confirming the word with signs following, amen. Is that a better ending than verse eight when they're running? Ah! I, like, I like this ending better. And again, just it feels right by the Holy Spirit if you ask me. Um, is Jesus just up in heaven sitting there hanging out? Well, don't forget Hebrews chapter seven says, wherefore is he's able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he, Jesus, ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's not just twiddling his thumbs in heaven as he ascended there, but he's interceding on behalf of you and me. That's some good news. And we have reason to rejoice, amen? amen. Lord, I do thank you so much for this uh, book of Mark. I thank you for this congregation who's willing to plow through some difficult stuff and take time to study your word. I pray that it'd bring good fruit in their lives, Lord. And I pray that we would um, remember the things that we learn and um, just give us a love for your scriptures, Lord. Um, and everything that I've spoken, I pray that people would search the scriptures to see if what I said is true or false. Um, Lord, that we'd be like the Bereans and, and that we'd let your word be the anchor, not a person or a church or a, a ministry. Lord, we just want your word to ring loud and clear in our hearts and minds. So give us that love for your word. Bless these, your people, as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.